One can expect global prices to soar as things definitely are going to be a problem, particularly in trade. Right now, the best poised country to deal with the problem is China. China is experiencing a bit of a spike in the Omicron variant at this point, with a thousand new cases just reported. But overall, the Chinese say they can handle that. But what they don't want to handle is having any sanctions or boycotts against their products, whatever those products could be. What is very strange is China, which has very limited oil production, is suddenly selling oil in the spot market around the world. China is suddenly acting as a middle seller to others, with Chinese corporations and companies offering cut-rate petroleum products, ranging from motor oil to synthetics to other developed products. And this has raised some serious questions. What is the source of the Chinese oil? Some claim it comes from Iran. Others say it is coming from Russia. To which the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs is basically jokingly said, Nyet. Nyet is the Russian word for no. But where is it indeed coming from? And what else is China up to? While the world is focused on Ukraine and Russia, China is moving along steadily, doing what it can to gain control of several key sectors around the world. A few days ago, I was talking about China's reaction to how they uh, viewed the crisis in Ukraine. Primarily, they find the option that Russia took of fighting to get something done as, as a weak point. They look at this text called the Art of War, and in that Art of War teaching, their primary training is that it is best to defeat an enemy without having to fight. In other words, by other means, any means, be it economic, social, propaganda, political, creating situations within those countries that cause them to fight each other, many other reasons, many other ways. China learned these lessons in the hard way. In the 1980s, they made a late 70s, early 80s, they made an attempt to invade Vietnam. They failed miserably. They've had several border clashes with Russia when Russia was the Soviet Union. And in all instances, they were unable to carry out their actions that they desired. In India, they have had some limited success gaining some border areas, as well as Pakistan. But in each case, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, and other areas where they have had border disputes, they've used the power of the purse, financial reasons, to be able to resolve those issues. The same with Nepal and Burma where currently they do have some conflicts and some border issues and incursions. This is probably the path that they intend to use in the South China Sea with countries like the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Vietnam. However, it is unlikely that many of these countries would be bought off if indeed China's goal is to take over one of the vast resources of seafood, which is the main source of protein for most of these countries, and take control of it. 
while we're thinking about that, Senator Carlin of the state of Iowa had something about this. I'm sorry. Senator Jim Carlin of the state of Iowa was discussing this topic and how exactly the whole issue of China's continued uh, presence and taking over was a problem with its gaining control of centralized American markets. Let's listen to Senator Jim Carlin and what exactly is China's objective as the world views a crisis and has to watch as things move forward. Here's Senator Jim Carlin. They produce 80% of the fertilizer. So here's the thing. The price of fertilizer in Iowa just went up 200% in the last year. So if they have cornered fertilizer, they kind of dominate that sphere of agriculture. That gives them a lot of power to define the market. That's Iowa State Senator Jim Carlin. But on top of the money involved, there's another risk when China has that much stake. It means agriculture in our country is shut down without them. You can't, that's a national security issue. You cannot allow yourself to become that vulnerable. Speaking of vulnerabilities, it's not just fertilizer. China also produces 80% of another critical resource, not just for one state, but globally. They produce 80% of the world's rare earth minerals, which, you know, now we're talking about electric cars. You can't make electric cars without those. China produces 80% of them. And the issue there, obviously, is if we were to go to electric cars, which the Biden administration has already said half of all vehicles will be electric and, you know, by 2030, that would devastate, probably even wipe out Iowa's ethanol industry. And again, if they produce 80% of the rare earth minerals, we're kind of at their mercy. We cannot allow ourselves to be that vulnerable to China. Making up a set of 17 metallic elements, rare earth is used in everything from batteries to fighter jets, computer hard drives, and as Carlin pointed out, hybrid cars. So what does that global dependence on China mean? Well, China realizes, and they're right about this, that whatever defines you economically is ultimately going to define you politically. The U.S. is already working to lessen that economic dependence. That we can't build uh, a future that's made in America if we ourselves are dependent on China for the materials that power the products of today and tomorrow. So what's being done? The U.S. Department of Defense recently awarded mining company MP Materials a $35 million contract. That's to build a new processing facility. The funding came on top of the $10 million the Pentagon already gave the company. MP controls the U.S.'s only rare earths mine, but the company still depends on China for processing. The money is going toward a new facility that will be used to process heavy rare earth elements, the first in the country. It's part of Washington's goal to secure supply chains for essential materials, especially those used to make defense gear. But why has the U.S. leaned so heavily on China for processing rare earth? Because the procedure creates a lot of pollution. 
To address environmental concerns, the White House said it would form a committee to recommend changes to the 1872 mining law. The rule has governed hard rock mining across much of the United States since the 19th century. But it's not just fertilizer and rare earth. China's influence extends to the food and meat industry, too. CCP also owns Smithfield Foods, which is the single largest hog processing or pork processing company in the world. And that's on U.S. soil. And our politicians let that happen. And this country needs to have more self-awareness about the economic domination that China intends over our country because it is a matter of preserving our freedom. Chinese company WH Group bought Smithfield in 2013 for a whopping $4.72 billion in cash. Smithfield is the largest U.S. pork company. WH Group also owns Asia's biggest meat processing company. Despite its Chinese ownership, Smithfield's website says it does not and will not import any products from China to the U.S., adding all products are made in America. While concerns are rising over Chinese influence in America, those worries haven't been enough to stem the tide. Ross Kennedy, founder of Fortis Analysis, recently researched the China-based Fufang Group. The company makes biofermented products derived from corn. They are used in goods ranging from animal feed to pharmaceuticals. Fufang is now primed to open a factory in North Dakota. So what's the problem? It's slated for construction just 13 miles from the state's Grand Forks Air Force Base, a location Kennedy says may have been specially selected by the Chinese regime for use as a monitoring and surveillance operation. He says there are enormous amounts of data going to and from this location, and when there's direct line of sight to the receiving or transmitting facility, the options get an awful lot better for anyone to begin to create traps for that data. The analogy I would use is, is if you're trying to capture data uh, that the United States Air Force is handling, uh, being somewhat close to uh, a major base like that is a bit like putting a cup under a waterfall. Uh, you're going a lot of these newer technologies that have uh, begun to emerge over the last few years uh, make it a lot easier to at least capture that data and analyze it, even if it's encrypted. Sometimes just being able to know what direction it's coming from and where it's going to uh, is enough to cause major harm. On top of data security, Kennedy also brings up another possibility. Nefarious actors being able to monitor the physical movement of people, equipment, and aircraft to and from the base. Anything about Grand Forks Air Force Base that makes it so attractive if you wanted to potentially cause some disruption to the United States military is the fact that it is a major uh, what's called an ISR or intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance base. Uh, it has our largest wing uh, of Global Hawk Recon drones uh, and is a major installation for the gathering, uh, analyzing and transmission of critical intelligence. Despite those issues, the project has been called a historic investment and game changer for farmers. According to Keith Lund of the Grand Forks Region Economic Development Corporation, it's also been dubbed the largest single private capital investment in the region's history.
uh, with Cynthia Myers and uh, China and Focus. It's a, it's a program that used to be uh, pretty much on YouTube streaming sites and a lot of places across the internet. However, big tech pressured by China has been taking down this program because it's produced by NT, which is uh, coming out of Taiwan. And you know, the People's Republic of China doesn't like anything produced by media that they do not control. Uh, Taiwan being a free country. Disclosure, I did work for a couple of Taiwan TV stations uh, doing reports uh, from the Philippines and other parts of Southeast Asia on situations there and other parts of the world as well. Um, it is a, a very different uh, game in, in Taiwan. It's just a commercial broadcasting industry and it exists. It's there, it's open, it's free, it's, and they pay well. Um, <laughs> but obviously, China pays better, and that's why big tech wants any voices shut down like that one. And it is a dark period of time that we're looking at right now, where everything is being blamed on certain events. For example, uh, the Saki, or Jen Saki, as she's sometimes called, or the sucker, or whatever. And they like to suck in the White House, especially when the Democrats in power. You can ask Monica about that. But yeah, uh, if you, you go into the Jen uh, 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 press conference with Peter Ducey, uh there was a very interesting exchange about blaming everything on Putin. Uh, she tried to defend herself about it, but didn't quite pull it off. In the end, it seems to be that is their new boogeyman. And they like having boogeymen in the White House so they can boogie. I heard you say again that you think inflation is going to be temporary. We've heard you say that it was going to be temporary since last spring. So how long do you guys think temporary is? Well, again, Peter, I think what we do is we rely on the assessments of the Federal Reserve and of outside economic analysts who give an assessment of how long it will last. The expectations and their assessment at this point continues to be that it will moderate by the end of the year. There's also no question that when a foreign dictator invades a foreign country, and when that foreign dictator is the head of a country that is the third largest supplier of oil in the in the world, that that is going to have an impact, and it is. And so to that point, inflation goes up today. The president's statement blames the Putin price hike. Are you guys just going to start blaming Putin for everything until the midterms? Well, we've seen the price of gas go up at least 75 cents since President Putin lined up troops on the border of Ukraine. And, and last month, the statement didn't mention the Putin price hike. It mentioned inflation because of the pandemic. Why is that? Well, Peter, last year, last two years, there was a pan global pandemic. Everyone who's a uh, global of inflation because of the impact on the supply chain. The global economy as well as global inflation. And the uh, price hikes as a result that have ex escalated over the course of time of President Putin's further invasion of uh, the impact on the global oil markets are of course having an impact. Go ahead. Just one yeah. more about electric vehicles. You guys are pushing electric vehicles today. This is a president who always talks about the power of our example. Mm -hmm. Does he own an electric vehicle? Presidents of the United States don't do a lot of driving. He's posted videos where he's revving the engine of his Corvette in Wilmington. He owns cars. And he also has driven electric vehicles as president, as, as to give a model to the rest of the country. Does he own one? I think the president's record on this is clear, Peter. Presidents of the United States, current, and when they are no longer, typically are not doing a lot of driving. Go ahead.
three Ps, Peter, Paskey, and talking about Putin. But they're also talking about the Pulse or electric cars. And does the president own one? Uh, I don't know. Well, he used to ride electric trains. So, I don't know. Peter Ducey, of course, a uh, former colleague from uh, Fox News, even though I was just a freelancer there. But uh, a colleague just the same. Uh, I've had some interaction. But not really that much. Mostly when he did uh, weekend hosting every now and then before he became the uh, White House reporter. Uh, of course, we are looking at all these things in context. And when the words of a senator come forward and you, you wonder exactly what does he mean, this time you don't really need to wonder because it's pretty clear. We leave you with Marco Rubio and the dark days ahead for the USA and the world if this situation is not cleared up. Probably the most important. I imagine watched worldwide threats hearing in my time in, in the U.S. Senate. And I was raised in the uh, final decade of a, of a long Cold War in which the struggle between the two global superpowers and two ideologies really threatened to end life on the earth. I came into adulthood and I witnessed the, the collapse of an evil empire, a vision, an image unimaginable to anyone just a few short years before it happened. And it seemed at that time that the world had reached the end of history, that liberal democracy had won and was destined to spread to every corner of the globe and the connections of a globalized economy would from here on out prevent war between great powers forever. The truth is that in every era, leaders, nations, civilizations have struggled with the same feature of our fallen nature. And that is the desire of the powerful to conquer, to enslave, to rule over those that are weaker than themselves. Western civilization in general, our nation, the United States of America in particular, embraced moral principles that stigmatize this part of our nature. And we created rules and institutions both at home and around the world to control it. But it's now clear that the last 30 years were but a brief respite from the rhythms of human history. Because while much has changed about humanity and our species, there is one thing that will never change, human nature. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has especially horrified the Western world because we uh, have grown accustomed to war and brutality being what happens in other regions, troubled regions, far away, or the stuff of grainy black and white videos. But now the victims are people who are familiar to us. There are people who just, uh, just a month ago they had jobs, they had lives, they had trips planned, they had weddings on the books. They lived much like we do on this very day. And then overnight, they have no home to return to, no job to resume. And we see the images of wives and children board buses and trains and unsure that they will ever see their husband or father alive again. This man's barbarism is a shocking opening chapter in the return of history. And now we must prepare ourselves for this new era, but frankly, greater dangers lie ahead. Vladimir Putin's claim is both meritless, but familiar. That his is a powerful country and therefore he has the right to make vassals of his neighbors. 
but it is not his claim alone. In the Middle East, Iran considers the Ayatollah to be the leader of the entire Muslim world, Shia and Sunni alike, and it seeks an arc of power extending to Lebanon, to Syria, Iraq, and eventually Bahrain, and it seeks the weapons to gain them immunity from the world to do anything about it. And in the Far East, we find the most audacious and consequential claim of all, an assertive China which believes that all roads must once one day lead to Beijing and that their smaller neighbors must accept their place in the world as tributary states. Standing in the way of this axis of totalitarianism is an imperfect, yet very powerful, living rejection of their claims, the United States of America. We face no shortages of challenges here at home. We're divided over issues that range from the consequential to, frankly, the trivial. But we cannot avoid the fork before us now. We will either awaken from complacency, build our national strength, and confront this century's version of authoritarianism, or it will one day come for us, and the world will enter a new dark age. In this new conflict, the agencies each of you have been entrusted to lead will play a role more pivotal than ever. Conflict now between competing powers and worldviews is no longer just the domain of soldiers and sailors. In this new era, our adversaries engage us daily on the battlefield of information and cyberspace, in technology and in the heavens. They infiltrate our schools to steal our research and our laboratories to steal our science. They enter our computers to take our data and our companies to take our industries. And they embed themselves in our social media to divide us against one another and to confuse us and in our critical infrastructure to one day hold us hostage. There is not a single American soldier on the ground in Ukraine, not a single American airman patrols the skies. We may not be at war with Russia, but we are most certainly in conflict with Putin. When Putin was denying any intention of invading Ukraine, it was your work, the work of our intelligence community that prepared a skeptical world to get ready and immunized it from the virus of disinformation. When it came time to inflict damage on his economy, it was our intelligence that identified the ones that would have the greatest impact. And all of us, as, I, as the chairman has pointed out, have been inspired by the bravery of President Zelensky. But every American deserves and needs to know that neither his people nor the world would have been able to witness this bravery on a daily, real-time basis had it not been for the hard work of the men and women of our intelligence community, often days and weeks before the storm. And so today, even as we hear about the conflict before us now, I hope we will hear about how our intelligence agencies are evolving to meet the new challenges of a new era, and specifically how 21st century intelligence was applied to the crisis in Ukraine. Today, we discuss the various threats confronting our nation. But in all this, let's not lose sight of the central threat before us now, because the spirit of totalitarianism has never left us, but it now possesses and lives inside great powers. And it's no, and not looking for an off-ramp. It's not looking for a face-saving exit. It's not looking for its security interests to be respected or their rightful place in the world to be recognized. It is looking to fulfill the darkest impulse of our fallen nature, to conquer, to dominate, and to enslave. This is no time to forget lessons of history. For this is a monster you cannot make a deal with. This is a monster that has to be defeated. Thank you. So that's Senator Rubio and his comments. Obviously, uh, an emotional one. Uh, it is the Senate Intelligence Committee hearing. The uh, senator is the vice chairman.
three P's, Peter, Paskey, and talking about Putin. But they're also talking about the Pulse or electric cars. And does the president own it? Uh, I don't know. Well, he used to ride electric trains. So, I don't know. Peter Ducey, of course, a uh, former colleague from uh, Fox News, even though I was just a freelancer there. But uh, a colleague just the same. Uh, I've had some interaction. But not really that much. Most of them who did the weekend hosting every now and then before he became the uh, White House reporter. Uh, of course, we are looking at all these things in context. And when the words of a senator come forward and you, you wonder exactly what does he mean, this time you don't really need to wonder because it's pretty clear. We leave you with Marco Rubio and the dark days ahead for the USA and the world if this situation is not cleared up. Thank you.